Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the name, the fame of your abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Father in heaven, we ask your blessing upon that word as we consider it in its uh, exhortation to remember what you have done for us, the way that you have taken with us your grace to us, your wonderful works on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen. I wasn't supposed to be your preacher this evening, as you know. Um, We were to be favored with a sermon from Kent Hughes, long the pastor of the a college church in Wheaton, Illinois, a church my own father pastored in the late 1940s and early 1950s. But uh, Mr. Hughes was unable to be with us, so it fell to me. And I had been thinking about something relative to our life together, and so when I was asked to fill in, I knew immediately what sermon I would preach. At a meeting of Presbytery last January held in Tacoma, During one of our sessions, I happened for some reason to glance over the sanctuary, and I was struck by how new to the presbytery so many of you are, and I think how few of us there are left who have been in the presbytery for any length of time. Our brotherhood is younger and our membership newer to a degree I didn't think I had ever fully appreciated until that moment. And it occurred to me that there are only now a few of us who remember the old days, who were here when things were very different than they are today. The importance of remembering the past is a regular feature of the Bible's instruction for living the Christian life. As you know, some of us may have a very good memory, some of us not so good, but all of us have a spiritual duty to remember the past, the great events of salvation history, of course, but also our own past, what the Lord has done for us and how he has been with us through the course of our pilgrimage. It's, an, it's a very important thing for an individual Christian to say to himself or herself, to this I will appeal, to the years of the right hand of the Most High, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. But it's equally important for a church to cultivate a collective memory. And we are a church, or a part of the church, this presbytery I mean, and we have a past. And as we are taught in Psalm 78, fathers are to teach their children the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, the wonders and powers he has done. So one generation is to commend God's works to another, as we read here in verse 4 of Psalm 145. Collective memory, however important, is harder to maintain in a society as mobile and ever-changing as ours, and in a presbytery as rapidly changing as ours has been. But it's always been difficult to maintain. You will remember how assiduously the ancient saints worked at this 
fixing their past with God in memory by the names that they gave to their children or to places or to a particular cairn that had been set up to remember a great victory in battle. They knew both how important it was to remember God's works among them and how easily such things are forgotten. You remember how often the prophets called to mind Israel's past, her sins, and God's grace to her. If you remember Stephen's entire sermon before the Sanhedrin that we have the record of in Acts chapter 7 was a recollection of the past, a chronological record of God's way with his people Israel. Well, I propose to preach a similar sermon this evening, a brief record, hardly complete, of God's way with this presbytery over the past generation. I've been a member of this presbytery for 37 years next May, almost the length of a typical generation, 40 years. Andy Krasowski, the next longest-serving minister in the presbytery, will reach 30 years in 2016, and Fred Zoller has passed now the 20-year mark. And so has our uh, associate pastor in Tacoma, Rick DeMass. But most of you have been with us for a comparatively few years. What is more, most of the ruling elders who were part of our brotherhood when I arrived in 1978 are now either retired or already with the Lord. Daryl Hanks, a long-serving elder at Liberty Bay in Polsbo, now worships with us in Tacoma with his son and daughter-in-law, but he is not well, and he suffers from dementia. Victor Long, the blind elder from Green Lake, who was so instrumental in forging plans to begin a church in Polsbo, and Al Van Wetchel, who served the Green Lake congregation for 50 years, half a century, are with the Lord. So is Laurie Steinberg, father of my daughter-in-law, once an elder at Westminster Presbyterian in Everett. Of the three elders who formed the session in Tacoma when I arrived, one is in heaven, the other two are old men now, long since retired, only one of them is able still to come to church. So if someone is going to tell you what the Lord has done in this presbytery over the years of this past generation, there are very few who can do it. One of them is myself. As I thought about that subject, I was reminded of the lines of Horatio Bonar, so I mused, so mused I silently as o'er and o'er I turned the wrinkled pages lying round the well-worn relics of long-buried years which rise to life again in every page, brief memories of love and grief and peace with glimpses of still unforgotten scenes, faces and names of former days are here. I've been thinking about our past for another reason. Florence and I have recently been going through old pictures from my late father's albums of black and white snapshots from the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. Seeing him as a boy, then a young man, then a college student, I not only didn't know, I still can't believe that he was a cheerleader during his one year at Bethel College in Newton, Kansas, then a college student at Wheaton, then a seminarian beginning his ministry, then the first pictures with my mother, their marriage, photos from wartime, and on and on through the first half of his life. 
how swiftly it all passes and how quickly our lives fall behind us out of the memory of virtually everyone and then finally out of our own memory. All his immediate family is long since gone. Most of the friends who shared the various chapters of his life, now his wife, already one of his children, not long from now the rest of them. And unless the lessons of his life are told to his children and to others, they will be lost forever. Thankfully, many of those lessons were handed down from father to son. And it's something like that I want to do this evening. When I arrived in 1978, there were fewer churches, in fact, many fewer churches in the presbytery than there are now, even though the Canadian churches were still part of our fellowship, churches in Edmonton, Calgary, and Vancouver. The American churches, at least the older, more established congregations, were in many ways Reformed and Presbyterian in name only. In ethos and in ministry, they were semi-dispensational Bible churches. This was the result of large-scale factors that had shaped conservative Presbyterian uh, churches and the conservative Presbyterian world through the middle of the 20th century. When Faith Presbyterian in Tacoma, for example, was organized in 1953, the worship, preaching, and ethos of the congregation were dramatically different in many ways from what they are today. But then they were different in almost every conservative, Bible-believing Presbyterian church. And no wonder. The Reformed faith was in tatters in the evangelical church as a whole. There were certainly plenty of Christians who confessed it, but it was not the confident and well-supported faith it has become again in our time. The Presbyterian Church of 1953 was very definitely not the Presbyterian Church of Charles Hodge. It wasn't even the Presbyterian Church of Benjamin Warfield. And it certainly was not the Presbyterian Church in America that you and I experience today. There were almost no national public figures who identified themselves as Calvinists. No R.C. Sproul, no J.I. Packer, no Tim Keller. The Christian Reformed Church, which was self-confidently and self-assuredly reformed, was still a Dutch enclave with very few connections to the wider world. There were few publishing houses providing the church with high-quality books. The reprinting of Puritan and older Reformed works had not yet begun. The ministry of Martin Lloyd-Jones in London, which was to provide the impetus for that remarkable development, was still almost unknown in the United States. The banner of truth had not yet appeared. Nor most of those other publishing houses that have since provided the evangelical church of our time with a flood of good Reformed reading. Most American Presbyterians of the conservative type had never heard of the English Bishop J.C. Ryle, or John Owen, or for that matter Samuel Rutherford. Only John Bunyan was widely known and read, and only his Pilgrim's Progress. In 1953, Francis Schaeffer was still a Bible Presbyterian pastor in St. Louis, Missouri, and almost no one in the conservative evangelical circles of our time had yet heard of C.S. Lewis. Had they heard of him, the fact that he was an Anglican and that he smoked and drank would have put an almost insurmountable obstacle in the way of his influence among our men. 
None of the books that would, a decade or two later, restore the intellectual confidence of American evangelicalism had yet been written. They hadn't even been thought of by the men who would eventually write them. The flood of young Ph.D. students who would eventually restore the foundation of Reformed biblical, theological, and church historical scholarship was then a mere trickle. Among conservative Reformed seminaries, there was only Westminster in Philadelphia. No Covenant, no RTS, no Westminster, California, no Knox, no Mars. There were some Bible conferences that were sometimes attended by Presbyterian folk, but these were very different from the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology or the Ligonier Conferences of today. They were taught by and large by dispensationalist teachers from Dallas Theological Seminary and by other, from other like-minded institutions. There was no NASB, no NIV, no NKJV, no ESV. Conservative Presbyterians, indeed the conservative Protestant world, still read the King James Bible. And among our folk, a great many used the Schofield Reference Bible with its notes, most of them fine, but some teaching dispensational eschatology, the carnal Christian theory, and so on. There was very little, if any, Christian television. Billy Graham himself was only then becoming a national figure, and no one had yet heard of the charismatic movement. Old light Pentecostals lived in a world of their own. Christianity today had, did not yet exist, and the new journals of Christian thought and cultural criticism were still decades away. So much of what has helped you and me to think through the faith and its implications for our life and for our culture had not yet appeared and would not appear for years to come. I think it would shock you if you could somehow return to the library of some of our best-read ministers in the mid-1950s and see how little there was for them to read. What is more, the conservative Presbyterian world had been shattered and then reshaped by its defeat in the contest with liberalism in the Northern Presbyterian Church. No wonder, then, that our churches had only tenuous connection with their theological roots. They lay buried in a deeply unhappy past and had borne a very bitter fruit in their own personal experience. The real Christians they knew were not usually Presbyterians. They were fundamentalist in mindset, and so our people were much closer to fundamentalist Baptist churches and ethos, worship, and philosophy of ministry, much closer than they are to the churches they have become today. On the other hand, the ministers and churches that formed the presbytery we now belong to had some notable strengths. They were faithful to the Word of God. Many of them had participated in the costly struggles of the first half of the 20th century, had stood up and been counted for the Bible when unbelief was capturing the historic Protestant denominations. They had paid a price for their stand. They had proved their commitment to the Bible as the authoritative Word of God. It was this principle and this conviction in the founders of the Tacoma Church in 1953 that, in my judgment, made possible the better things down the road. The Bible was always going to be their authority. And when people read and listen to the Bible as the Word of God, errors are inevitably seen for what they are in due time. 
What is more, they were still Presbyterians. They may not have had the same benefits as Presbyterians that we now take for granted. They may not have been as self-conscious or as intelligent in their Presbyterianism, but they were Presbyterians nevertheless. Our Presbytery was founded with the Westminster Confession of Faith as its theological standard. People may have been much less conscious of that theological outlook, much less well-educated in it than they would later become, but they still had an instinct for it and retained it as the foundation of their church. The Reformed theological system that was laid down at that time was the soil from which eventually genuinely Reformed and Presbyterian fruit would spring. They were mission-minded and evangelism-minded. Whatever their failures may have been to appreciate the role of Christians in the culture as a whole, and it would be years before any of them had ever heard of Dutch neo-Calvinism, that did not mean they didn't think it important to present the gospel to unbelievers, to see their lives and thinking change, not only in their own neighborhoods and communities, but in the world as a whole. And finally, they loved the Lord. They understood that the Christian life was a matter of walking with him, loving and serving him. All manner of good things are possible when you begin there. Most of our churches in those early 50s years had long since plateaued. While they remained going concerns, they were not notably successful, except perhaps the new church in Calgary, pastored by Bill McCauley, then still in his infancy, or still in its infancy. Now we've moved ahead to the 1970s. That church had an impressive vitality and was growing in every way. Half of the congregation had been won to Christ by the other half. The church in Vancouver was also a new and promising work under Doug Codling's leadership. Most of you have never heard of either of those two very fine and faithful ministers. Doug is long since retired, uh, living in Saskatchewan. Bill has been in heaven since a massive heart attack took him there uh, at 50 years of age in 1990, by which time, alas, he had come back to the United States to pastor our Bellevue Church and subsequently had returned to Canada to pick up the pieces of the shattered congregation that had begun so promisingly under his ministry. Some of our churches, such as the one I came to pastor, had been seriously damaged and diminished by division. None of them had ever been very large. And as younger ministers came to replace the older men, most of these churches had to pass through periods of unrest as older members resisted the winds of change. Hillcrest, Green Lake, Bellwood, Issaquah, and Tacoma weathered the storms with more or less success. Our churches in Bellingham and Alderwood Manor did not. We had mission churches in those days, but nothing like the measure of financial support that we now take for granted. Indeed, just as I was arriving, a presbytery now composed of largely young men decided to borrow large sums of money to purchase a newly vacant church building in Polsbo to plant a congregation there. I remember to my shame that we young men thought that our older men who counseled against the plan were lacking faith and vision. 
The fact was we were lacking wisdom, and almost immediately it became clear that we were going to find it difficult, if not impossible, to repay the debt we had incurred in a timely way. As a rookie minister, I was put on what was then known as the Church Extension Committee, and we met every month, and every month through those first several years, two questions occupied almost all of our time and attention. Whether Liberty Bay and Polesbo would take the whole presbytery down with it when it collapsed into bankruptcy, and whether we could keep the doors of the Mission Church in Lake Stevens open for another few months. As it happened, Liberty Bay survived, but at immense personal cost, and only because our bondholders, Christians that they were, agreed to take promissory notes in exchange for the interest payments that were due, and because a number of them turned their bonds into gifts. They hadn't intended to. We promised them an investment but some of them felt they had no choice. They had been snookered by fellow Christians. The mission in Lake Stevens, now Crossroads, likewise survived, but only after years of sacrifice by everyone involved. It was a mission that should never have been started. We would know better than to start it today. And it was seriously underfunded. We wouldn't make that mistake today. But the Lord blessed the prayers and the labors of a faithful few. We lost churches as we gained them. We closed the Alderwood Manor and Highline churches, also English Hill, a church plant organized only a year or so before it died. And not so many years ago, our relatively young church in Spokane was lost to us. Pastoral changes either didn't revive them or in one case did the church in. We lost our mission in Athol, Idaho, over the first stages of the Federal Vision controversy. Mission churches were begun but never organized in Kent, Olympia, and on the Olympic Peninsula. We had two in Boise that struggled along, which eventually combined to form the foundation of our congregation there. It was through the years a case of two steps forward and one step back. We were, in any case, very small fry, as we continue to be. We had our ups and we had our downs, some very significant downs. Pastors removed for conduct unbecoming, churches imploding or simply wasting away, missions failing, and thankfully only in a few cases, ministers at odds with one another. But through it all, perhaps this is easier to see, it is perhaps only possible to see from the perspective of later years, the Lord blessed us, not spectacularly as the world measures uh, such things, but really and visibly. We've never had a mega church, a so-called big steeple ministry among our member churches. We never gained a high profile as a church, even among the churches of the unchurched Northwest. But the number of churches and missions has grown substantially. We are considerably larger than we have ever been before, even with the departure of the Western Canadian churches. Some of our churches have grown significantly, and our influence has grown apace. We've never had a national figure in our membership, but we now have a state senator, 
We've had some very fine people, faithful ministers, elders who have made very important contributions to the life and work of their own churches, of the presbytery, and of the church at large. My own congregation is in an entirely different position in every respect than it was 37 years ago, and in every respect for the better. Thinking back over the years, certain things stand out in particular. We've never had a divided presbytery. We've never had the problems that many PCA presbyteries have had because of ideological divisions. We've never had parties in our brotherhood. But I think that fact notwithstanding, we have a more active common life, a greater sense of brotherhood among more of our men than has ever been the case in this presbytery. The church planting network has contributed mightily to this. The trials through which we've passed in the dispute over the so-called federal vision, likewise. But I suspect that this happy unity is also the result of social changes in American life and so American Christian life. We are more collaborative by nature than used to be the case with Christian men and especially Christian ministers. You are more than I am, uh, to be frank. Our financial situation has never been better. Believe me, years ago our resources were never remotely what they are today. My first package as the sole pastor of the Tacoma Church was a little bit less than $14,000 a year. And believe me, the cost of living in those days was not the entire explanation for that sum. Our churches had limited means. They all did. And that wasn't to change for a good many years thereafter. The multi-million dollar building projects completed in Tacoma and Issaquah over the last 10 years were unthinkable in the 30 years beforehand. The amount of money available for church planting years ago was the tiniest fraction of what we can muster today and left our church planters very vulnerable to the whims of circumstance. I could go on and on, but what does all of this teach us? What are the lessons we might carry away from this review of the past, of these past 40 years of God's providence in the life of our presbytery? Well, let me mention those that remain uppermost in my own mind. As in the Christian life, so in the life of the church collectively, the Lord's blessing is usually given over time. Surely in our individual lives, as in the life of our congregations, there are memorable moments of advance, of the joy of the Lord, of divine provision in a time of need. We know that. But most of the time, it is only over time that we come to appreciate what and how much the Lord has done for us and among us. Even omnipotence works gradually, as Charles Hodge once observed, and it certainly has worked so here. And all of us will be wise to learn that lesson and take it to heart. The Lord will do what he wills, of course, but we're wise to expect unspectacular progress. We need to teach this lesson to our people, of course, in regard to the Christian life and the life of their congregation in order to prevent the inevitable frustration, the sense of spiritual defeat. But we need to remind ourselves of this truth. The Lord may make one of our churches very large and entrust to it immense resources, 
but it's not likely. We must be willing to stand our post in the day of small things, take comfort from the fact that that is what most Christians in the history of the kingdom of God in the world and what most Christian ministers have had to do, and ours will be the greater reward. Anyone can triumph while riding the crest of the wave. We are a tiny part of the kingdom of God, and very likely we will remain so for the foreseeable future, all the more given the shrinking of the church in our time. Perseverance must be our watchword. It must be the thing that we have taken most to heart as our responsibility and as our philosophy of minister ministry. You younger men remind yourself of that constantly. Perseverance is what the Lord has called me to. But at the same time, we have every right to expect progress. Perhaps unspectacular, perhaps slower in developing than we would wish, but progress nonetheless. We have never been a presbytery of high flyers, and we are not today. But the Lord has granted us growth in virtually every way in which Christians measure growth. Our churches are more spiritually healthy than they were years ago. Believe me, in a number of cases, much healthier. They are more unified. They are better led. The preaching they hear is better. They are accomplishing more. They are better connected to other parts of the kingdom of God. They are sturdier financially and so on. If they are weaker in any way, I expect that they don't pray as much as they used to. But in all in all, there has been progress all around. Blessing the Lord promises to bestow on faithful men and faithful churches. Robert Murray McShane, who admittedly lived and worked in a day of the Spirit's power, observed that Christian ministers should expect success for their labors. Our experience in this presbytery is confirmation of that observation. And finally, the key to that faithfulness that the Lord rewards with progress and blessing has been, in our experience, it will always be faithfulness to the Word of God. It won't be one's philosophy of ministry. Believe me, we have been through the years and we are today all over the map with respect to philosophy of ministry, and there is no correlation whatsoever in our experience between philosophy of ministry and the measure of success that ministry has enjoyed. It will not be the charisma of our ministers. Without question, the two most charismatic ministers in all the years of my life in this presbytery had to be deposed and were eventually excommunicated. It will be our fidelity to the Word of God. The Lord honors those who honor His Word, and it is the Word of God, not the one who brings it, that doesn't return without having accomplished the purpose for which it was sent. Perhaps you know these lessons already, no doubt you do, but I hope some historical perspective will serve to drive them home and fix them in your mind. What we want, at the very least, what we should expect, at the very least, is a presbytery that a generation from now will have progressed from this point as far as we have progressed over the past 40 years. Believe me, as someone who has been here throughout that time, that would really be something. 
Amen.